you have a copy of the Scriptures, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. So Isaiah is in the Old Testament, so the first half of your Bible. Um, if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, either on your phone or a smart device or a hard copy, we're going to put the text up on the screen so you can at least follow along, and then maybe you can even kind of write down some of the verses that we're using, and that way you can go back and look at them um, later. But Isaiah chapter 9 uh, is where we're primarily going to be, and then I'm going to read uh, verse 2 through 7. This is a pretty common passage. You've uh, probably heard this, especially this time of year uh, at some point, but let me read this. Isaiah chapter 9. I'll start in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as the people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This passage um, is all about the expectation of a coming Messiah, a deliverer, the, the, the sent one. And the expectation is that this Messiah would change forever the trajectory of not just your life or my life, but of all of human history. And it's normal in this season, it's kind of baked in this expectation, whether it's something simple or kind of fun, like a kid who's expecting to get a certain present or gift or toy, um, or it's something much deeper. Like maybe for you, there's expectation in this season that some part of your life, something will finally change. There'll finally be a change in a relationship. There'll finally be a change in a career. There'll be a, a, a breakthrough in a diagnosis or a, an opportunity that you've been expecting or waiting on. Something will finally change. We're waiting. We're holding out for that. One of the cool things about our staff here is we've got several young people, and they bring a ton of energy and talent and passion about Jesus and about our church. Um, it's a lot of fun having them around. We've got some younger men uh, who are newly-ish married. Uh, they're at least in the phase of their kind of marriage, but now they're starting to have kids. And uh, a couple of these guys have wives that are pregnant even right now, which is kind of fun. And it's fun to hear them describe the different stages, and they go to the different ultrasounds and the different imagings and stuff, and the doctor's appointments, and they always talk talk about how unbelievable their wives are. You're welcome, Mark. Um, <laughs> but it's fun to be around them and kind of hear them process and talk it through because uh, there's so much that's bound up in the arrival of this child. You know, they're like, well, I wonder what it's going to look like. And I'm like, well, they kind of look like a lizard when they come out. So it's a little, <laughs> it's a little weird. Um, what are they going to be like? What are they going to act like? What are they going to be into? And for the world before Jesus, it was, it was like this. There was something growing, and there were pains, and it was uncomfortable. There were uh, tensions in the world, and there was this feeling that something's got to change. There's a king that's supposed to arrive and make everything new because the world is a mess, and it's sin and death are running the world. The, the prophet talks about it in the text we just read. He, the people are walking in darkness. They live in the land of deep darkness. There's a yoke that burdens them, a bar across their shoulders. 
the rod of their oppressors. There's, there's this language of war and, and bloodshed and turmoil. And before the arrival of the king, there really is no lasting solution for any of that. But then you get to verse 2, and it says, But the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Well, how's that going to happen? Later in the text it says, Well, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This text was written 700 years before Jesus Christ arrived on planet Earth, and the prophet is describing life before Jesus. He says it's, it's dark. The people of God were under the iron boots of the Roman Empire. Um, their worship was empty and sterile. Their leaders were corrupt. The people were discouraged and lost. The people were promised the Messiah. They were promised the sent one. They were promised the deliverer. And, and after the, the prophet uh, Malachi, they hadn't heard from God in like 400 years. So I don't know if you've ever um, sent a text to someone and you've really kind of poured your heart out in a text to someone and you can tell that they read it, but you're not getting anything back and it's taken a long time. Or maybe that little like bubble thing with the three dots is in there and then it goes away and then it comes back again. And then it goes away and then it comes back again. And you're like, this is miserable. What are they doing? What's happening? There's 400 years of that for God's people. It seemed like God was silent for hundreds of years and the people were running out of hope. And, and it could be maybe for you, maybe you're in a season like that where you feel like, okay, God, I have poured out my heart to you. I've told you everything. You, 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 I've given you uh, all, all my feelings about my situation. I've cried out in desperation. And I'm just getting that like, little bubble with the three dots in it from you. The thing to know if you're in a season like that is to know that just because it feels like God is taking his time, it doesn't mean that his timing isn't perfect. If it feels like you're in a season where, God, you're really taking your time on this, it doesn't mean that his timing isn't perfect because we have a timetable of how we think things should happen. And most of us, myself included, when it doesn't happen in that timetable, the first thing that we start to do is we start to worry. We get anxious. We cry out even more. My situation's not changing. My situation's not improving. And that's totally normal. And I know it's normal because the Bible gives us places where that shows up. And Psalm 13 is one of my favorite passages for this. The psalmist says in Psalm 13, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Don't you love that the Bible has this? So like if you've ever felt like that, it's like, oh, okay, I can talk like that to God. God, how long is this going to be? Like, he says, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day I have sorrow in my heart? How long do I have to have this stuff rolling around in my head and I can't sleep at night? How long, God? How long will my enemy triumph over me? I, I love that the Bible has this because this is what real life is like. I've had moments like this, seasons like this, prayers like this. God, how long? But what the Scripture teaches us in this passage is that our waiting, while it might include worry, it should lead us to worship. Your waiting should lead you to worship because the, the psalm concludes like this, but I trust in your unfailing love and my heart rejoices in your salvation. There's a shift from, God, how long do I have to wrestle with this? 
to verse six, I'm going to sing your praise because you've been good to me. And what this psalm teaches us is that your waiting, while it might include worry, is not wasted because there can be worship in the waiting. There's a reason for your waiting, and God's going to get it just right. And we think a lot of times God's main role in our lives is just to give us all the things that we really want. And while it is true, uh, the Scripture says that God is a good, good father. He gives good gifts to his kids. There's all kinds of places in the Bible where God delights in our asking, and he wants to do good to us. But God's commitment is to what you need most. Um, and he's, when we trust him, we see that is what we ultimately want. And according to Romans 8, what we ultimately need is to be more and more like Jesus. And God says, I'm committed to that because that's what you need the most. But that's not always an easy life because the road that Jesus walked wasn't an easy road. And we can read that, we understand that, but when we actually start to experience it, it's like, wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for with Jesus. I thought, you know, when I got Jesus, there's lots of like good stuff. And there is. There's some difficult things too. Our text uh, this morning says that people walked in darkness, which is our culture, our, our world, if you've not noticed. Um, it sounds like the days and sounds like seasons that we, that we have. And when you are in darkness, all you want is to be able to see. You want the light to show up. Uh, uh, several years ago, uh, Luke Simmons, who's a uh, lead pastor over at Redemption Gateway, and my friend Ricardo Stewart, who used to be the lead pastor at Tempe, the three of us went to Vancouver, Canada, because uh, Redemption, one of the things that Redemption Church does, we help to start churches and help other churches that are starting, like, kind of get off the ground, things like that. And so we were financially supporting a church that was in Vancouver, um, and we had never met them or seen their work. So the three of us went up there to meet their team and see the work and see kind of what was happening there and just see kind where our investment was going with them. Uh, and we had never met these guys before. And so when we showed up, they thought, hey, this will be a great kind of like bonding moment, uh, kind of like a team building type of thing for us if we all go to an escape room together. And this is like when escape rooms were just kind of like starting to be a thing. I had never been one. They had never been to one, but they're like, this will be great. You guys, we'll, we'll, this is how we'll like have our first time together in a super pressurized, stressful situation. So if you're not familiar with... Uh, escape rooms, they're, they're like a big puzzle that you have to solve, and you got to pay like attention to details, and you got to like decipher clues, and you got to just kind of be like, you got to really dial in and really like pay attention. Not my strong suit. So we get in the room, and everyone's trying to work, and they're trying to kind of work together and figure things out, and I'm just doing what I do best, which is make comments uh, that are sarcastic and not helpful, and so they get, they're over me real quick, and so I kind of just get kind of pushed over to the corner. I'm kind of standing against the wall because I'm not very helpful, uh, and I'm kind of standing there, and they're all scrambling. They're all working, and the time is ticking down. It's a timed exercise, so you have to get out in a certain amount of time, and we're, we're like near, kind of, we're pretty close to the end. We got like five minutes left. Uh, and, we're, and we're nowhere near being able to be finished with this. And I'm standing and I'm leaning against the wall and there's, there's like a button or a switch, can't remember. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what that is. And so I hit it and it turns off all the lights. And they're all freaking out because they're like, what happened to the lights? Who did that? Who touched that? Whatever. And so I'm like, oh, I'll just turn it back on. I hit it, nothing. I killed the lights for the whole thing. And so the whole rest of our time in there, pitch black, can't see, we do not pass the test, and I don't know that 
our team got built any better. Um, it, it was really funny because like the whole rest of the time we were there, my friend Ricardo would like randomly just say, hey, remember when we were really trying to solve that problem, Paul just turned off all the lights on us? Um, so it was great. Sometimes, though, life just feels like that. Like we're scrambling to try to solve like a problem. There's a situation. There's, a, there's an issue. There's something that we're up against. And like we're... We're working so hard just to figure it out, and then all of a sudden, the lights go out. That, that's how the Bible describes our world. But we're lost in sin, in our rebellion against God. We're lost in darkness. We're lost in isolation. No lights and no way out. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when he's talking about Narnia, when he's describing Narnia, he says it's always winter and never Christmas. That kind of feels like the world apart from God. I, Isaiah is saying here, he's saying, that's the state of the soul of people and ours. And even though we're a pretty advanced society technologically and living conditions are, are better than they have been for most people in the world, we're still depressed and lonely. Our lives are not feeling better because it's dark. Because there's no hope in mere human achievement, meaning we're constantly putting our hope in human abilities and human ideas and human philosophies and human solutions, and it's humanity that's put us in this place in the first place. We need a hope in something transcendent outside of ourselves to bring healing to our brokenness, because when our hope is only in ourselves, it actually sucks the life out of us. But the scripture talks about a life that comes from hope because there is a rescue that is outside of us. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So he's saying love is clearly the greatest, but hope is in the mix because hope is what you need to take the next step. Hope is like the oxygen that you breathe. Hope is how you face the next thing. Um, so in 1977, the very first Star Wars came out. So Jeremy's not the only person who's allowed to talk about Star Wars up here. Um, and when, you, when the scene opens, you drop in. There's this oppressive empire and evil reigns the galaxy. So people are under its control um, and they're looking for a way out. And the, and the title of the movie is, is what? Anybody know the title of the movie? A New Hope. A New Hope. Well done. <laughs> Hi, Marks. A New Hope. Why is, why is that the title? Why is that so powerful? Because no one's free. They're all, in, they're all enslaved. There's, there's no way out. They need a, a new hope. They, there, there needs to be one who will rise up and who will come and save them. Great idea, George Lucas. Where'd you get that from? Hope gives us life. It's a future reason to keep going and not give up in the present. And what Isaiah is teaching us, yes, it's dark, and the Bible doesn't shy away from that reality, but there's light that's coming. And so what this forces us to wrestle with is what are we putting our hope in? What are we putting our hope in? Are we, are we putting hope in our appearance or how we look? It sounds a little too superficial to say out loud, but for some of us, that's what we're hoping in. Uh, our, our intellect, like what we know, how we solve problems. What we're, what we, how we think better than others, our success or our wealth. If our accounts go up, our hope goes up. Our accounts go down, hope goes down. Whatever the thing is, 
We all know this because we've all experienced it. Whatever you're putting your hope into, ultimately, it's fading and it's fleeting. It doesn't stop us from pursuing it. doesn't stop us from having an appetite for it. That's for sure. But we all know whatever we're putting our hope in, it's, it's all crumbling. And the text tells us that there is a light that shows up. How many of you have your Christmas lights up already? Anybody have Christmas lights? How many have your Christmas lights up because you actually never took them down from last year? It still counts, I think. So my wife and I play this little game every day. It's a lot of fun, where every night she plugs in all the Christmas lights, and then every morning I wake up and unplug everything. So, and I know we could get one of those little timer things so it goes off and on, but how else would we frustrate each other? So I unplug them every morning. Why? Because lights make the most sense when it's dark. If you remember in Lord of the Rings, uh, one of the gifts that they give to the, to the fellowship is the light of Arendelle, and, and the thing that she says to Frodo when she gives him the little vial thing is like, I give you the light of Arendelle, our most beloved star. May it be of light for you in dark places when all other lights go out. And then it's the thing he like pulls out with the shelob, the spider thing, and it chases them away. Why is that important? Because when all other lights go out, you really need light. And we've all been in those places in our lives. We've been in those places where I just really need light to show up in my marriage. I really need light to show up in my family or in my job or career. I need light to show up in my health. I need light to show up in my finances because the darkness is consuming. I need light to show up in my faith in God because the darkness is swallowing me. And, and so often we try these little like external fixes and aesthetic things or therapy animals or whatever, and it might pacify and it might help for a moment, but it won't solve the darkness because what solves the darkness is what Isaiah brings in verse 6. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The prophet saying the only thing that will give you hope The only thing that lasts and can stand in the darkness is a child that is born that will save us. The prophet is saying the only way that the world will realize true joy and hope and love and peace and all these things that we celebrate during this Advent season is not through a philosophy, not through a new religion, not through a political power, not through economics, not through your promotion, not through your perfect marriage, not through your perfect kids, but through a child being born whose name is Jesus. And it is the pivotal moment in human history. Isaiah is saying that this Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He's a prince of peace. He's the one the world's waiting for. He's the one who saves, the one who gives life. And the story of Jesus that he comes and he lives the perfect life and he gives his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world and he rises from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death. That's what was required of a savior and so that's what he did. Because your career can't do that for you. Your spouse can't do that for you, or your next spouse won't do that for you. Your money can't do that for you. Your influence, your power can't do that for you. Your political party cannot do that for you. Nothing can give up its life for you to save you and give you hope and peace and love and joy. Only Jesus can do that for you. And I also understand that not everybody here, or maybe everybody watching, believes that. And maybe it's because you've not really seen like how that makes a difference. And maybe for you, the Christmas story is just a little too absurd. And I understand that. I mean, if God was going to show up, it's really going to be to like two teenagers in a cave where they keep animals. 
And then if you look at the life of Jesus, he doesn't really seem to even do anything until he's 30, which you're like, okay, God, there's a lot of work to do. I think you'd maybe get started a little bit before then. And I think it'd be way more impressive if God showed up on like a big flaming horse with a massive army to wipe out the entire Roman Empire. I mean, if you watch the beginning of a football game, there's like fireworks and an anthem and fighter jets. I mean, there's more fanfare to start a football game than how God shows up to earth. But he came as a baby to a poor family. But when, he, but when he came, he brought peace and hope and love and joy. Isaiah said he's a counselor, which means he's with us and he carries us through this life. He entered in. He incarnated. That's why they wrote that song, Incarnation. He incarnated. He entered into our experience so that he can identify with us in a profound way and so that he can carry us through. The ultimate solution to our lostness, to our searching, to the darkness is the person of Jesus. And he doesn't show up as a politician or a military leader or an economist because that's not what most needs changing. What most needs changing is our spiritual situation because we are dead in our trespasses. Our souls are at war. There's war and like conflict in us. The, the psalmist talks about this in Psalm 42, 5. Why are you, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Again, the, the Bible knows how we feel. You ever have a season like that? I know I have. Why, why is there this turmoil in me? And then he says, put your hope in God. If you had one takeaway this morning, because I've said a lot of things, but if there's one thing that you have to kind of walk away with this morning, let it just be this. Put your hope in God. He just preached a whole sermon in one phrase. I'm up here saying all kinds of things. One phrase, put your hope in God. Because what the scripture teaches us, and this thread weaves all the way through the scriptures, without God, you do not have real hope. Ephesians 2 says this, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the new promise, without hope and without God in the world. They're connected. No hope, no God. You have hope with God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. So that's a way to describe hope. It's not just like a sterile, just kind of sitting there hope. It's living, it's active, it's doing things through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And in all of this, you greatly rejoice. You have to understand this is written to a church that was under heavy, heavy persecution. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls." So if you don't believe in Jesus, and I know there's people in here like that, this life, this is it. This is for you as good as it's going to get. So just eat and drink and be merry, and then you die. 
But Christmas, it kind of rattles us. Because Christmas presents the arrival of something, of someone that gives me real hope. And if you're not a Christian, you are the one who has to wrestle with what you've put your hope in, and you have to weigh it against Jesus. You are the one who has to have, you have to ask yourself that question. I've put my hope in all these things. I've put my hope in these other people. I've put my hope in these other opportunities or experiences, and what have they actually done? Has it have those things come through for me? You have to ask yourself that question. Because either life is bigger, there's more to it, or that's it. Either, either we're created by a God who loves us and who came for us so that we could live forever with him and experience new life in this life and in the life to come, or we come from nothing, we're going nowhere, and this life is all that there is, and the universe is cold and dark and means nothing and offers us nothing but loneliness and decay. Those are your options. And one of those stories gives me hope, makes me want to keep going, makes me want to press on. The other one makes me want to just hide and just be selfish. Romans 15, the Apostle Paul says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Twice Paul mentions hope in one verse, and he says it only happens through God. The world can't do it. Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying, he said, the best moment of a Christian's life is his last one because it's the one nearest heaven. He said, the only people that I have felt any envy towards have been the dying members of this church. The most important feature of biblical hope is about certainty because hope is, hope is expectation. But a lot of times the way that we express it is like, oh, I really hope this works out or I really hope this happens. But biblical hope is not just a mere desire for something good to happen. It is a confident expectation based on who God is. That's why the Psalm 42 says, put your hope in God, because he's a God who not only makes great promises, but he delivers on those great promises. And you have to fight for that. That's what the Christian life is. When you're faced with temptation, what's going to help you get through that? The hope that Jesus is better. That's how you fight. The assurance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11. Because what shame and guilt will do to you is they'll bring you down, they'll crush you, but hope is the lifter of your head. And, and our sin, my sin, my failure, it's real. It's very real. But if I am in Christ and Christ is in me, that does not have the final word in my story. And my hope is found there. When my kids were younger um, and they would get scared at night, they would come to our bed and They'd come in our room, and um, my wife would go and crawl in bed with them. And I realized the story would be better if I was the one who did it, but I have to be honest because my wife goes to church here, and she knows what I'm being lying. Um, she would. She would get up, and she would go, and she would get and crawl in bed with them. And often, she would be there in the morning when they would wake up. And it was her presence that got them through the night. And it's the same thing with God. This is what Isaiah is saying to us. How do you make it through the night? How do you make it through the darkness? Our only hope is in the presence and the power of God in the person of Jesus. The band's going to come up. We're going to close. I got one, just one kind of story I just want to share with you um, as, as we end. Um, on July 31st of this year, at 8.45 a.m., um, a friend of mine was in a car accident. 
a utility truck uh, from the power company pulling a trailer, ran a red light at like 50 miles an hour, and smashed into my friend's small sedan. I actually have pictures um, of his vehicle. Um, my friend, who is 72 years old, suffered 10 broken ribs, a broken sternum, three broken vertebrae, and the, the tube from his bladder to urethra was torn. Um, he was airlifted to a trauma hospital, and they had to put eight different tubes into his body to drain blood from his lungs and other fluid from his body that was just kind of happening because of all the trauma. Um, he was in the hospital for 48 days and then a rehab facility and is miraculously home now doing outpatient recovery. God spared his life. Um, Sean Warren, who's one of our pastors here, and I actually had the opportunity to go to his home and to visit him um, this week, and it was an incredible visit. Sean, um, if you've never spent any time with Sean, you need to. You need to find him. He's really easy to find, uh, but he's an, inc he's an incredible guy. But sh one of my things that I love about Sean is he's one of the best question askers that I've ever met. Like, when you just sit and have a conversation with him, he just asks, like, super insightful, really great questions. It's, it's a lot of fun hanging out with Sean. Um, but when we sat down with my friend, Sean barely spoke. He barely said anything. And it's because what this man was sharing was so good on its own. At one point, um, he turned to us and he said, you know, I've learned two important things in all of this. And so I immediately took out my phone. I was like, all right, I got to start taking notes. I have to write this down because whatever he says next is going to be really good. I mean, you go through this whole ordeal and you're like, I've learned some really important things. I'm like, I want to know what those things are. And he said, first, when someone says, I feel like I got hit by a truck, they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> he says, but now I do know exactly what it feels like to get hit by a truck. And then he said, two, in life, you have to learn to live with disappointments. And I thought, okay, the next couple of phrases, he's going to be talking about like all the physical pain, the medical bills, the legal stuff, all just the frustrations and hassle of a major car accident. But here's what he said when he was talking about what his disappointment was. He looked at us and tears in his eyes, and he said, I was this close to finally seeing Jesus face to face. If the truck would have hit me one second sooner, or if it would have been an inch in another direction. My hope, my expectation would have finally and fully be realized. He said, my biggest disappointment was that on July 31st at 8.45 a.m., I wasn't in the presence of Jesus. My friend is not odd. He's not weird. He doesn't have a death wish. It's not strange like that. He just really loves Jesus because all of his hope is in him. In fact, what he said, he said, several people have told, said, well, God must have more work for you to do. And he said, I just think God has more work to do in me. 
In fact, when he was in rehab, he was telling his nurse how it was God's grace that spared him. And he was telling the story and relaying all of this to her. And she said to him, well, I guess I need to work a lot harder at being more religious. And he said to her, boy, do I have some great news for you. The work's been done. And he was able to lead her to Jesus and they got her a Bible and we were leaving the house and he asked Sean and I, he said, hey, would you uh, do me a favor? Would you, would you pray for the driver of that truck that his consequences wouldn't be too severe and that one day I could actually meet him and I can tell him about Jesus? So my friend is Sam Knight, who is such an important part of this church. In fact, today is his first day back in church since July. He's in the back back there. So... Um, if you know Sam, tell him that you love him. Even if you don't, tell him that you love him. He's like one of the best people I've ever met. But how is it that Sam can act like that and talk like that? And this is what Christmas answers for us. There is a hope from heaven that sustains us in this life and in the life to come. And that hope has a name. And his name Jesus. And every week here at this time of communion, we celebrate him and we remember exactly what he's done for us. We remember him through the body and the blood. Uh, so around you, there's two elements that are just prepackaged. There's the bread and the cup. They are a reminder to us. They are a tangible expression, something we hold and taste remind us of the broken body of Jesus Christ and his shed blood for the payment of our sin. The scripture is very clear. Jesus did not sin. He who knew no sin, but he became sin on our behalf. Um, Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, a life that you and I should have lived, but never could. And he died as the perfect sacrifice, a death that was due us because of our rebellion against the holy God. And if your hope is there, and if your trust is there and there alone, then these elements are for you. Because not only is Christmas true, not only is the arrival true, but where Christmas culminates is true. Because the hero of the story dies. He gives his life as a ransom for many to pay the penalty of our sin to have the wrath of God poured on him. Christmas is not just the arrival of God to be with us, but it's God's pursuit of us to save us. And we haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. But he breaks into our world and he suffers for your sake and for mine. And that is the hope that we hold on to every week when we take communion. So if your hope and faith and trust is in Christ and in Christ alone, then eat and drink in remembrance of him. If that is not your confession this morning, then you really don't take these elements just because everybody around you might be doing it. If you eat it, you're just going to eat like a weird cracker and some questionable juice. But, but this is a moment for you to consider what you have been putting your hope into. And is it real? And it's a moment for you to just say to God, if you're real and the hope that's in you is real, make it real to me.
And if that's a conversation that you want to have, there's all kinds of people that will be around afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about that. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we eat and we drink and we sing and we celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus. Let's do that now.